In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Okay, God willing, today we're going to continue studying uh, in the book of Joshua. We stopped at Joshua chapter 10. Um, does anyone remember what were the main things that happened last week? We cha studied chapters 8 and 9. Does anyone remember what happened in chapter 8? The Gibeonites was uh, chapter 9, so that's the, that's the one after. We'll get to that in a second. Well, what's chapter 8? Before the Gibeonites. So remember, they, the, the Israelites, they had gone to attack a city. What was the name of the city? Ai. And, um, and were they successful or not? So yeah, the first time they attacked, they were unsuccessful, right? And then the second time, after they had rooted out the sin of Achan, who had stolen some of the accursed things from Jericho, they were successful. And we spoke about how um, God worked through the human effort when they were attacking the city of Ai. And then in chapter 9, the Gibeonites. So what is the what happened with the Gibeonites? They, uh, they deceived Joshua by uh, making him think that they are from a far country and uh, to make a peace accord with them. And then when Joshua found out um, and the people of Israel found out, they uh, took them as slaves, essentially. Good. So we talked about how the, the Gibeonites, they had some measure of faith in the sense that they believed that God was actually with the Israelites and they, he was calling them to destroy everyone and they believed that they would be also destroyed and so they're in their faith they deceived uh, they deceived Joshua and the Israelites pretending to be people who are living in another place so that they would be spared from destruction and um, and of course they ended up becoming the slaves of Israel when it was discovered and we spoke about how the, the faith that they had was not uh, like the fullness of faith. It was not like the, the a faith that leads to salvation, but it was a faith of the mind. It was like a belief, but how is it that we can leverage this, uh, this knowledge that we have about the existence of God for our own benefit? It was not a faith of submission. It was not a faith of obedience. It was not a faith that led to um, really um, salvation as God wants us to believe. But it was, how can I use this knowledge of, that I have in order to benefit myself? And so that was chapter 9 uh, about the Gibeonites. Now in Joshua chapter 10, we, we read about some more of the battles that Joshua and the people um, embark on. So it says, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had, had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they, were, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. So this uh, king, Adonai Zedek, he was the king of Jerusalem, right? Of course, we know Jerusalem is a famous city. is going to end up becoming the capital of Israel. At this point, it is you know, uh, it is occupied by these other kingdoms, okay? Um, and, and so what was his, what was the reason for his fear? What caused him to be greatly afraid? Uh, 
It says there right there in chapter verse 2. They feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. Right? So so what is it having what does that have to do with the reason he was afraid? Jerusalem thought that the Gibeonites were going to now attack them because they were in like a, an agreement with Israel. Well, yes, they are they were a mighty. Yes, so they could be like allies to Israel, right? But also because Israel was able to subdue them, right? Like these Gibeonites are now in the service of Israel, and if if give the Gibeonites are this great mighty warrior people, and for them to now be subservient to Israel, course that's frightening right like if your enemy is subduing these very very powerful people then it's something that makes you afraid and of course also like you said now those people are allied with them therefore Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem sent to Hoham king of Hebron Piram king of Jarmuth Japhiah king of Lachish and Deborah king of Eglon saying so all of these other kings come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel Okay, so he's saying all the Gibe the Gibeonites who were well known as because they were always living in the land, he's saying they are now allied with the children of Israel. Let's all band together so that we can attack them. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. Okay, so all of these different people you can kind of see here on the map if you can see um, showing all of these different people uh, in the in the different areas kind of spread out there in the south and they all went to fight against Gibeon uh, and to make war against it and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal saying do not forsake your servants come up to us quickly save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us Right, so the Gibeonites now they are being attacked, so they are calling out to Joshua and and asking for his aid. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, "Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand; not a man of them shall stand before you." Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So God is giving again reassurance, as he has many times, to Joshua. Every time <coughs> that there is a battle, a challenge, an enemy, God is reconfirming again this covenant that God is with them. Do not be afraid to fight. Every single fight that Joshua gets in, uh, gets in um, God is granting him success. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Aska and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azica and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So see it's very interesting because Again, God is telling the people, I want you to get in your armor. 
I want you to make battle plans. I want you to go after these people. I want you to risk your life. I want you to fight all like your f the fullness of your human effort. I want you to invest in this fight. So he tells them, fight. He tells them, he gives an encouragement. He tells them, I, I, uh, do not be afraid. I will be with you in the fight. And he tells them, I will grant you victory in the fight. And so they did everything that God told them to do, right? But in the battle, okay, they were successful in the battle, but people were running away, right? So then those people who were running away, what does God do? He sends hailstones, and it says more people die from these hailstones than from the people who died by the sword, okay? Which, again, it, it, it gives you a picture here, right? Like, God, if you wanted to wipe these people out with hailstones, why didn't you just wipe them out with hailstones? Why didn't you just bring hailstones on all the people in this land and demolish them completely and then tell Israel, come on in, you know, the land is ready for you? Or God, knowing that this would happen, that the majority of people would flee, why didn't he just tell them, I'm going to kill these people with hailstones, right, from the beginning, you know? So on the one hand, you see the same principle we talked about before, which was the cooperation, right, between God and man. We definitely see it here. But maybe a, a deeper question is, why does God want man to do anything? Why can't God just do it himself? Because God is more effective at it, right? And even after the human being's best effort, God comes in and he finishes the job. You know, why? Why do you think that God is even asking the people to go and to go into these battles? Okay, so maybe to test their obedience. Okay, he wants them to obey him. He wants them to, you know, whatever God says, he wants them to follow. Okay, that, that's a reason. Why else? You guys have a lot of energy today. <laughs> Maybe if they weren't involved with it, they would get lazy or they wouldn't appreciate what God did for them. Okay. So one reason is that if they just relied on God completely for everything, right, then they wouldn't be using any of the skills or the talents that God actually gave them. You know, part of God's work in us is the work of the talents and the skills and the abilities and the opportunities that God has already put in us. Like, that's part of it. Like, God already put in us capabilities, right? And that's why some of us have different capabilities than others. We all have different capabilities and different capacities, you know, different abilities and different gifts to do different things. Those are God-given, right? So if, if God were to come in and essentially solve every problem himself, right, what would be the purpose of those abilities? Why would God give it to us? You know, he doesn't give us those things just so that we can be, like, happy with them, just so we can gl glorify ourselves with them, just so that we can show off with them, right? He, he gave it to, to us so we can use them, right? But in what way would we use them if God is always just coming in and solving everything himself, okay? Good. What else did you have a comment? You were going to say something? 
Um, so God also doesn't want us to rely on him 100% for everything. He wants us to first, you know, try to work. As we are working, yes, of course, we are giving glory to God, and we know that God is supporting our work, just like we saw in the city of Ai. Right? Remember, there were no miracles in the city of Ai. The city of Ai was all about a battle plan that they implemented, and you didn't see any divine intervention with like miracles. You didn't, there were no hailstones. There was no walls falling. There was none of that stuff that was happening. Right, But we talked about how God was working throughout because when the, they tried to attack the same city without God's pr working with them, they utterly failed. Right, so So God's work is sometimes invisible and hidden and intertwined with human work in such a way where sometimes we don't even recognize, right, the work of God. That's why, like, sometimes when people say, why do you keep saying thank God? Why do you always saying, like, glory to God? Why do you always say this? When obviously it's like a human effort, right? We, s we know that there are certain characteristics about people that would make them succeed, like if a person is organized, if a person is intelligent, if a person has a good vision, if a person has such and such, if there's good teamwork in a team, you can look at that and you can say, well, it's very likely that this group of people will succeed because they have good qualities and good characteristics, okay? Well, number one, you can have all that and still fail. Number two, all those good characteristics came from God to begin with, right? And God blesses the work. God can bless the work in a, in a, in a way where... We're not even aware of what could have gone wrong, right? You know, sometimes, like, when disaster strikes, when there's some kind of tragedy or when there's some kind of failure, it's not like when that doesn't happen, we're thinking to ourselves, oh, that could have happened. No, usually we're just oblivious to all of the bad things that could have happened, all the obstacles we could have had that we just didn't experience, right? We just didn't experience them. Maybe God has a hand in preventing those things, right? He has a, an invisible hand, a hand that... It's hard to point to, hard to, to, to track down and say this is the reason. Also, God wants us to, so God wants us to use those gifts. God wants us to make our, our best effort. And he wants that the people realize that God is with them working. So he's telling them, do, do this work. And then when they see that their work was incomplete, was, wasn't enough, then they see God coming with the miracles. You know, like then God is saying, okay, now because you've put in all that you can do, because you've done all that you are able to do with what you have been given, now I will come and finish the job in my own way, in my own style, right? That's when, like, the obvious stuff happens. This is why, like, in the church, when we speak about miracles, right, we, we, d we definitely see there are miracles, right? But the miracles come when there is no, usually, when there is no human way that something can be accomplished, Usually, that's the case, right? Like you have someone who has a, a, a life-threatening disease that there is no human cure. And then you see that St. Mary appeared to that person. There was some miracle. That person became cured, right? We hear about these stories, right? You don't hear about St. Mary appearing to someone with a headache, you know? Or, or you don't hear about, like, saints appearing to someone with a very curable disease that we have medicine that you can be cured from. Right? Because God actually already gave us the miracle, quote unquote, through the natural means, through the human abilities, through the human technology, through human advancement, through, through what he has already given. He doesn't need to come with supernaturalness, you know? So, so when we are always looking to miracles and thinking like some people love 
to you know read about miracles and see miracles and and that we feel like somehow miracles is like evidence that of the presence of God. Well, actually, maybe when we are focusing on that, we forget that actually God is present and working constantly all the time. And maybe it's just not as obvious to me that it's working. We don't have to see the hailstones, right? We don't have to see that in our life because in the previous battle in the city of Ai, God was equally present and the people were equally successful and they equally gave glory to God even though there were no miracles at all, right? This is why even in the church, like when we talk about canonizing saints, saints don't have to be miracle workers. You can have people who never performed any miracles and they can be saints, right? Where the presence of God is so clear in them and in their life and the effect that it has on others without there being any miracles, right? So God's work, his, his, his work is, is constant, consistent, all the time in our lives. And the thing that we need to do is to become more aware of him, more aware of it happening, right? So when we say, you know, thank God, that it's not just a phrase that we are just now used to saying all the time, right? That it's like, I truly believe that God is present and that he is working and that without his presence, everything would have failed, right? Because again, the city of I, they were people were confident, they were ready, they had everything that they needed to have, and yet when they went, they lost completely, right? And the, and the problem was not their battle plan, the problem was not a human problem in the terms of like, they didn't, they didn't have the resources they needed, the problem was a problem with sin. The problem was that there was a, a, a barrier between them and God, and so God removed his blessing, right? This is also why um, when we see the effect well, this, this, is, this is also the reason why it is difficult for us to point to the exact effect of some of the spiritual activities that we do, right? Like when someone says, okay, what is the benefit of me praying? What is the benefit of me taking communion? Well, we can give like the, the theological answers, right? But when you're looking at a specific event, like if I would have prayed, would it have been different? Um, you know, what would have my life looked like if I had been praying for the last year versus I hadn't been praying, right? It's hard to point to those answers. We don't know. But what we know is that there is this invisible blessing and presence of God with us to help us, to bless us, to transform our lives, to give us peace, right? Versus when God's blessing is not there, right? So you might have people, because again, people ask this question. It's like you look at maybe some people who are very, very successful in their life, appear to have everything, and maybe they are wicked people. They are sinners. They're, they're living in sin. They're living in rebellion to God. They, 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 they're not trying to, to submit their will to God in any way at all. And yet you look at their life and say, well, why is their life so great? You know, as compared to my life, which seems miserable, which I don't have any of those things that they have, and here I am trying to pray and I'm trying to serve and I'm trying to do these. Why isn't God blessing me with the same things that he is giving to all of those people who are wicked? Well, the answer is that, number one, just because God gives those things to others, don't think that that means that it's a blessing. You know, actually, when about riches, Christ said that the desire for riches is a snare, right? He said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So even the context of when we're thinking about success in the world, wealth in the world, pleasure in the world, we, sh we shouldn't associate those things immediately with success, right? Because 
in the world, that's what we do. In the world, we are associating those things with success. And when we see some people have those things, we're like, wow, I wish I had those things. Why is God blessing that person with those things? Why is God allowing that person to have those things and me not to have those things? So that's the first thing, is our currency of blessing. What is the currency of blessing? Is it big houses and fancy cars and, and all of our needs and being comfortable and whatnot? Like, again, it's easy for us as human beings to associate that with the blessing of God, and that means that the absence of that is not blessing, right? But that's not how God works, because God's goal is greater than those things. God's goal is our eternal salvation. And so for if, if God sees that those things are actually an obstacle to my eternal salvation, then it is a blessing not to have them, right? Again, as, as humans, maybe we don't know that. Maybe we can never know that. Maybe we will never be able to figure that out, right? Why is God allowing that, right? But he is. That is part of the presence of God in our life, is the absence of those things that maybe we wish we had, right? So here we see clearly God's work in the supernatural and in the natural, okay? So we should always keep that in mind. All this whole process where God is telling the Israelites to go and kill and to go and take the land, we shouldn't look at it as a human effort. And it's not only the effort of God either because, again, God could have done it without the people. He didn't need the people to do it. It is a cooperation. And whenever you find cooperation in Christianity between God and man, that is when things happen. That is when the greatest things happen is when there is cooperation, not when it's one or the other, right? It's easy to look to God and say, God, fix my life, you know, fix it. I want it to be all, I want it to be changed, you know, but I am not willing to put any effort to change. Or you can have a person who is trying to put all their effort into solving a problem without God and they will never find the solution. And maybe even the solution they do find is, is suboptimal. It's not the best solution. You can have a person who says, God, I want to get married. Find me the husband, find me the wife, and just bring them to me, okay? Maybe that will never work. And on the other hand, you can have a person who all they're doing is searching, 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 and maybe they, that also doesn't work. So there's also a cooperation. Like, yes, I will do my part to keep my eyes open to do the things that I need to do, but at the same time, I'm trusting that God will bring me the right person at the right time, right? It is a cooperation. The best things that can happen to us are based on cooperation, um, as St. Paul says, that we are fellow workers with God, fellow workers. And that is the greatest blessing. One of the, again, the benefits of this is that we are glorified by, by God allowing us to work with him. Like that is the greatest blessing, that we are allowed to participate in the divine work, you know? So it, it's not that God looks down at us as being insignificant. You know, like think about think about it like I like to use the example of ants because to me ants are just like you can squash them, right? And they really don't have much value in the human mind, right? Like we don't really look at them and be like, oh wow, you know. So imagine as a human being, okay, you're you are you are caring for these ants, and you 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 want to leverage the ants themselves to work with you on something. Like you're trying to help them with something, you're trying to do something for them, but you want them to participate with you in the process itself. Like how easy it would be for me to just do it. As a human being, I have the capability, I have the capacity, I'm a billion times bigger than them, right? And I have the intelligence to do something. We say, no, 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 I want the ants to help me in the work, right? I want the ants to help me in the work. And I'm also gonna become an ant 
you know, to motivate them, right? It sounds ridiculous. Like, none of us would ever think to do that. Like, we would just do it and it's done. Like, why? It seems inefficient, right? To, to, to give the ants the opportunity to participate in the work when it's just, it's not going to work right. People are, the ants are going to disobey. They're not going to, they're going to fail. They're not going to be able to do, right? And that's what God does with us. Like, how easy it would be for God to just simply do what is it that needs to be done? And yet he wants us to participate with him in the work. And that's when that synergy, that relationship between us and God, because that's really what this is about. God wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship. And the way, one of the ways to establish a relationship with us is that we work together. Like if you've ever been in a situation at school or at work where you've had to work closely with someone for a really long time and you develop like a good working relationship, you know, hopefully, right? Like you find yourself maybe getting closer to this person, right? And that there's a, there's a bond there that begins to form because you've, you've had common challenges and you've had to work and work and work. Having a relationship with God requires that we, we trust, right? Like we trust God and God also tells us what to do and we have our part to do it and we follow, right? This is the relationship. So all of this is part of God having a relationship with his children. Not that God is going to do it all and not that he's going to leave the people to do it all, right? They fought, God granted them victory, but as the people were running away, God said, no, I'm just going to bring hailstones and kill them. And more people were killed even with the hailstones than with what the Israelites did. But what the Israelites did was a crucial and essential because if they had not done that, God would not have done this, right? If the people had said, no, no, we are not going to go fight the people because we're afraid of them. Well, how did that turn out in the past? Whenever the people said, no, no, we're not going to go into the promised land because the people are giants, God said, okay, just wander in the desert for 40 years, right? He didn't come to them and say, oh, well, you're afraid to go in? Don't worry. I'll just bring the hailstones, you know, and then I'll wipe out the people, and then there will be nothing for you to be afraid of. How easy it would have been for God to do that, and he, re he refused to do that. He would not do that. He needs to see our faithfulness. He needs to see our cooperation. He needs to see that we are trusting in him, but he doesn't reveal how things are going to turn out. You know, like here, he could have told, the to told Joshua, you're going to go fight against them, and you're going to win, but a lot of people are going to run away, and then I'm going to bring hailstones, and I'm going to kill the rest. He could have easily said that to Joshua. He never talks about what he's going to do. Very rarely does God speak about what he's going to do, or when he does talk about it, he talks about it in a way where you can't really know exactly what he's going to do, right? He speaks in metaphor or in parable, you know, even like in the book of Revelation. How many of us want to know what is the end of the world going to look like? None of us know. We, we know all these metaphors about dragons and, you know, all kinds of stuff, but that doesn't translate into like, okay, one, two, three, four, five, this is when it's going to happen and this is how it's going to happen. We don't know. God does not reveal that. He wants us to just trust him one step. He says, do this, okay, I do it. And then he says, okay, now step two is this, and now step three is this. You know, everything is revealed to us as we need it. And honestly, if God were to reveal everything to us all at once, we would have a panic attack. Like, we could not handle everything all at once. We can barely handle the one thing, right, at a time. And that is what God is saying here. He's telling to Joshua, here's the next step. Go up against these people and fight them. This is the next step. And he's encouraging them in that step. What's going to happen later, you're going to find out later. Okay? And that's the way that God works. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord 
in the day when the Lord deliver up, l- delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So what happened here? Joshua, they wanted to complete the battle in the daylight because once it became night, they couldn't, ha- they couldn't com- finish up the battle. So what did he do? What did Joshua ask God to do? He asked God to do something that maybe none of us would even consider as being a valid request. You know, he asked God for something beyond imagination, which is make the sun stop because we want daylight in order to Finish the battle, okay? And it says here that it's recorded in the book of Jasher. This book of Jasher um, is like a, a, a lost book. We don't have it, but it's also mentioned in Second Samuel chapter 1, which is like a historical document that has uh, like events and different things that was recorded, but we don't have it, um, unfortunately, to, um, to be able to read, okay? But again, Joshua is demonstrating his faith and that he's asking God to do what cannot be done in the human mind. Kind of like when St. Peter, when he saw Christ on the water, he told Christ, if this is really you, call me out to the water so I can walk on the water like you. Crazy. Like, like who, who, would, who would think to ask this, right? But it requires really a depth of faith for these people to say, I trust in God so much that my, my, the, the human limitations are not going to be a hindrance and what I know that God can do. Again, we're talking, remember we said God does what the human being cannot do in a time of need, right? It's not like, oh, at any time we're just going to ask God, please make the sun stop, you know, turn the moon purple, you know, and then God is going to do everything we say. No, there is a need here. There is a time of need. They're in this war. God told them to wipe out these people. Um, the people are running away, then the Joshua needs more time. So he said, okay, you want me to fight these people? Please make the sun stop. Make the day very long so that we can continue to fight against these people. Now, we don't know how this happened, like scientifically. You know, there are some people who try to give a scientific explanation to everything that's in the Bible, right? They try to give a scientific explanation for the Red Sea parting. They try to give a scientific explanation for everything that we read in Genesis and so on. I'm not trying to say that um, any particular thing is supernatural in the sense that, like, is it possible that there are some things that God does that have a natural scientific explanation? Of course. I mean, the, the, the definitely, right? And science does not contradict with what the Bible says. But it doesn't have to be, right? It doesn't ha- there doesn't have to be a scientific explanation. God is able to break the rules that he himself created, you know? Like, we have faith that the earth turns around itself every 24 hours. We believe that every year is going to be 365 days. Like, like we, we trust in these mechanisms because we have always seen them operating. And so we believe and we understand why they are and in the sense of like from physics perspective, why they are. So if they change, if there's some aberration to it, we're going to be shocked because we place so much trust in these systems. Okay? God is the one who created such a system. So, you know, it's kind of like in a classroom, 
where the teacher tells the students, okay, here's the system of the classroom. You're allowed this amount of free time every day. Um, if you have good conduct, then you get this. And what all the different rules of the class. At any point in time, the teacher, based on their discernment or whatever decision, they can override those rules. They can say, you know what, today you get more free time. You know, or today because you weren't good, you're going to, you know, such and such is going to happen to you. And no one is shocked at the fact that such changes can happen because we understand that the classroom is run by a human being, by a person, right? So when we look at the universe as being run by a person, right, who placed a lot of rules that run on their own that are predictable, but run ultimately by God, then the fact that there is like exemptions to the rule that we call miracles is not something so surprising, right? But when you believe that the universe is God, when you believe that the universe is the kind of foundation of everything, then yeah, it's like we can't explain. How, how could such a thing happen? You know, because it breaks the, the laws of the universe. Well, it's okay, because someone made the laws, and he can change the laws whenever he wants. So again, I don't know what is the explanation for this, right? But we're just taking it at face value of what it says. Yeah. Uh, yes, I want to, but the, the, the thing that is hard to believe is the fact that the sun stopped because it, like the day doesn't is not elongated by the sun stopping it's actually because of the earth uh revolving around its uh axis in 24 hours so it would make sense to say that the earth stopped from revolving um other than to say that the sun stopped because the sun stopping won't make the day longer so he's describing what he sees, right? So what if the earth stopped rotating, what will be the, the status of the sun? It will stop in the sky, right? He's not speaking here about the absolute motion of the sun, right? He's speaking about its appearance in the sky. So if the earth stopped rotating, then yes, the sun will stop. Stop in the, in the way we perceive its motion, right? Because we speak about, for instance, sunrise and sunset. Now, the sun is not actually rising or setting, right? The earth is turning, and the sun is where it is, right? So, so this is just a, a way of describing what he saw, not, uh, and, and even his request. You know, actually, our whole solar system is moving, and our whole galaxy is moving. So I saw one time in this documentary, like, if you were to actually draw, like, the actual motion of the earth in space... It doesn't look anything like this. It's just this very complex movement. If you look at all the motions that are affecting our Earth all at once, there's the rotation of the Earth, there's the revolution of the Earth around the sun, then the whole solar system is moving, and then in the, gra in the galaxy, and the whole galaxy is also moving, right? So if you look at all those things, like you can't really, like what does it mean to stand still? Like we say, I'm, I'm standing still. You're not still at all, right? But I'm describing it from my perspective, Right? And that's what that's what he's doing. So this particular event, okay, um, is actually referenced in other cultures and societies. Okay. So a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, he he's he writes that there were some Egyptian priests that showed him documents that recorded that there was a day that was longer than the normal length. Okay? And in the Chinese culture, there is writings that speak about a similar day in the reign of an emperor whose name was Yu. 
and Emperor Yu was a contemporary of Joshua. So in their writings, they say that in, uh, during the reign of this emperor who lived at the time of Joshua, there was a day that lasted longer than the normal day. Also in Mexico, there are documents that tell of a day that was a long day that also happened around the year of Joshua's life. What do we make of this? Is this like hard evidence? No, I'm not saying this is hard evidence, right? I just I'm thinking that this is interesting to kind of like corroborate or, 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 or kind of get some, you know, background about that. It's possible that these kinds of things, because obviously if if the Earth really does stop revolving or rotating, it's going to affect the whole world. And actually, if the Earth really stopped rotating, like <laughs> from a physical perspective, everything would fly off the Earth. Right, so so it, it cannot it cannot just be, again from a scientific view. Okay, we'll just make the Earth stop rotating, and, and because that would that would kill everybody. Right, um, there's something else going on here, which is again why I'm not trying to explain or that we know what exactly went on. But this is what the Bible says, and the result was is that it stayed daylight for uh, a very long time. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. Okay, so after this battle, um, they returned to Gilgal where they, were where they were before. But the leaders of these five peoples who they were fighting against, they fled and they hid themselves in a cave. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. Okay, so what are they going to do? They're going to lock them in the cave. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter the cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So what they did is they locked the, ca the kings in the cave where they were hiding, so that they could go and finish up the the rest of the war uh, and then come and to see what is to be done with these kings. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. So the remaining people that entered into these fortified cities, like they, they, got, they got away. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their, uh, their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of... Uh, the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large swords against the cave's mouth, which remains until this very day. 
on on that day, Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he did to the king of Jericho. So um, what do you think about all of this? What are your impressions, your emotions as you're reading this? It seems excessive. Excessive, right? It seems like very violent, right? Do you think it's uh, excessively violent? No? So why why no? Um, because, like... Only because you read, like, when you read further past this, you see the, like, influence of all these, like, neighboring groups on the Israelites. And you get a bigger picture of it's kind of like him protecting his kids from strangers mm. who don't want the best for them and who will confuse them and lead them astray. So it is the, in order for this to make sense, in order for us to see this in a, in a better light, then you have to understand who these people are, okay? You have to understand who these people are. You know, we we nowadays, and, and I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to make any political statements, but <laughs> we nowadays we want to we want to think, or society wants to think that all people's values and and philosophies and 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 ways of life are all equally good, right? So we have to treat everyone equally. I'm not saying that we're supposed to go and kill anyone. I'm not trying to say that. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Like, historically, in, like, these, uh, like, parent-teacher uh, organization meetings that they have, in some places, they started the meeting with prayer. Historically, that's the way it's been. But nowadays, um, of course, the idea of including any kind of Christian religion in what is a public meeting, like governmental, because it's a public school, okay, is considered troublesome, right? So one approach that people took is, okay, we're banning prayer, okay? Another approach that, that some people took is, no, well, we're going we're gonna to allow it, but we're going to allow everyone equally of any religion to also offer some kind of prayer, so you'll have some of these meetings, and, and I'm not saying this is extremely common, but I've read about them, where, like, for instance, there is someone who practices Wicca, like witchcraft, offering a prayer. Satanists offering some kind of a, a prayer, right? Um, the same is true with, like, the, um, the beginning of, like, the sessions of Congress, right? So more and more, the idea is, well, no, we have to be secular. We have to be you know, giving everyone equal opportunity, right? So if you're going to allow this, then you have to allow that, which as a principle, I think makes sense. Like it makes sense to be fair. We are not saying that we're going to give one particular group um, special access, right? When the government is supposed to be agnostic to religion, okay? But it belies something fundamental, which is do we believe that all of these different religions are equally good? 
Are they all equally good? Yeah, maybe some people are going to believe one thing and some people believe another thing. But is the moral and belief system, right, of a particular religion just as good as another one? Like, are we going to say, well, okay, Satanism is a religion and, and Christianity is a religion. So are, are, are s- from, the, from, the f- from the view of society, should society look and see that these two things are equally good? Like equally, people are have equal, you know, right to be this and to be that, and and so because we're treating even everyone equally, we need to allow people who are Satanists to have equal time and praying and whatnot as Christians, for instance, right? You have something to say? But that only, I agree with you, but <laughs> that only happens if the people who make these decisions also have like an idea of what is good because if you don't know what is good then anything can be good right yeah now that's the thing you know if you if you eject christian morality like like so much of let's say our, our country for instance was built on christian moral principles whether whether you want to say that these people are like really devout practicing christians or not the idea is that the principles themselves are rooted in the scripture and the bible right and so there are certain things that we value as a society. Like, for instance, the nuclear family. The idea that there is a father and a mother and a children and they all live together and that this is the most successful and best way to live until children are grown, right? The nuclear family concept is rooted in Christianity, okay? But then you have groups that come, like Black Lives Matter, for instance. Actually, many people don't realize this. One of the things Black Lives Matter promote is the destruction of the nuclear family. They don't want the nuclear family, okay? So, so are we, is our society gonna then say that, you know what, well, this group believes nuclear families, right? This group over here says, no, nuclear family is not good. So, so we're gonna give, ev- they're all the same, they're all equal, you know? No, as Christians, we believe, no, the nuclear family is actually set up by God and it is the best way. Right? It is the best way. Yeah, obviously there are situations where it doesn't work out in the best way because there's brokenness. Right? There's brokenness in the world. There's brokenness and weakness in human beings. So it's not like every everybody's family is like this ideal picturesque thing. But what is the standard that we are trying to reach? What is the thing that we are trying to protect? Okay? Wh- why am I saying all of this? Because here this is a group of people, as Sephra you mentioned, okay? that are fundamentally, like, their life and their way, their way of life is fundamentally contrary to God. And that if the Israelites were to live in this place and to remain faithful to God, then these people could not be there. They could not. Because as we will see later on, when they fail to kill, because they choose not to kill all of these other nations, these other nations end up causing them to become idol worshippers. Right, And because of the idol worship, they end up being destroyed, exiled. The northern kingdom ends up being completely wiped out and scattered abroad and never to return. The southern kingdom gets exiled, and then a remnant of them remi- uh, come back. Okay? Why? Because of idol worshiping. And where did they learn the idol worshiping? They learned it from these people. Right? So the, the Bible does not try to sugarcoat as we try to do today, where we try to label everything as equally good. No, the Bible says there's things that are evil. And the people who practice them 
what is God's judgment? No, these people need to die. Like it sounds <laughs> very like the issue here is that it is not the human beings who are making the decision. If the Israelites came on their own with no prompting from God at all and they said, you know what, we want to kill all these people. No, that would not be sanctioned. God is the judge. See, that's the other thing when we, we look at the physical, the material world and we, we don't include God in it and we don't think about God in it. We just think, oh, well, we're just a bunch of humans living together and your way is just as good as my way. Okay. Maybe from a governing perspective, that's the only way that we can do it. But what is the reality? The reality is, is there is a judge, a creator God who created us all and he gave us a way to follow, a way of life. And he said, if you follow this way of life, you will have eternal life. But if you follow a different way of life, you will have eternal death. So he, as the judge, is judging. Whether he chooses to judge in this way, whether he chooses to judge when all these people die of natural causes and then he judges, the judgment is the same judgment. And what he offers us here by seeing this is a picture of the judgment. What does the judgment look like? So that we as human beings are not kind of self-deluding ourselves into thinking, oh, you know what, everyone is good, everyone is the same. You have a right to live, I have a right to live. No. As Christians, yes, we are called to love our enemies. As Christians, we are called, what, why? Because loving our enemies is not, um, is, is, is not affirming their beliefs or their actions. Loving our enemies is giving the option to the very last breath for all of those people to turn to Christ because of the love that we are showing them. If they know the love of Christ, then this is maximizes the potential of their repentance and salvation, which is what God wants, right? This, this is why we are called to love, right? We are called to love because that will bring them into salvation, bring them into the church, okay? And when he says God is love, this is what, this is what he wants. He wants salvation for everyone. But the same God who is love is also the God who commanded them to do this because he is also a judge, Right? So there is a time for preaching. There's a time for forgiveness. There's a time for mercy. Just as King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. But there's also a time for judgment. And for these people, this was their time. This was their time. And it was done in a way where we can understand God's thinking. God's, God's way, like God is how he is serious and dealing with this sin. So, like, in a, in a, in a such a, 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 you know, a... a what the right word is <laughs> like such a clear obvious firm way right He's saying don't mess with this don't mess with the idol worshiping don't live like these people because here is the outcome of these people you don't have to just wait for everyone to die kind of of natural causes and then guess oh well, i wonder what happened to that person did that person go to heaven did that person not go to heaven no here this physical judgment is a representation of the spiritual judgment that they are receiving in this moment Right? So he's telling everyone, this is, not, this is not the way to live. And these people had the options. They because, again, because of Israel. Like, look at what happened. Again, we said, spoke about the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites knew the God of Israel. 
because they knew the miracles of the God of Israel. They knew the God of Israel was leading his people. They knew the God of Israel was granting them the land. And because they knew the God of Israel, they had the opportunity to repent, to change. But instead, they used that knowledge to try to deceive and try to get what they wanted out of it, which is, again, why the church fathers speak about the Gibeonites as being like a people with a faith, but a faith that does not lead to salvation. It was a mental knowledge of God, right? But it is not, it is not something that leads the people to salvation in the end. So all of these people knew about God. They knew that this was the God who parted the Red Sea for the people to cross. Did any of their gods do that? None of their gods did that. Like These people could have said, you know what, there is something up with this God. This God is not like these other statues that we have. There is something about him that's different. And they had the opportunity to change. And there are people who are proselytes, like people who are Gentiles, non-Jewish people who end up coming and, and being a part of the assembly of Israel. And God even had laws to govern that, right? And they had to be circumcised and they had to follow the Ten Commandments and they had to do all of that. And God accepted those people, right? Whereas these people did not accept those things. Rahab is another example. Even though she was a harlot, her, her response was, not only do I believe that your God is, is, is doing that, but I want to go with you. I want to be saved by you. And it, we read earlier that she was living in, in, the, in, the, in Israel after this time, right? And we know that she ended up becoming one of the ancestors of Christ. Because even though she started out like this, she changed. So by presenting this and making it so clear, God is actually giving everybody a warning. He's giving a warning to the Israelites saying, this is the consequence of this, don't do this. And he's also giving it to the rest of the Gentiles because, look, if you don't want this to happen to you, change. Change your ways. You have the opportunity. So we also, as the church, are like the beacon of light in the world where we are showing the love of Christ on the one hand, but we are also warning of the judgment on the other hand so that everyone can then decide for themselves what is it they want to do, how they choose to live. I had two questions. Mm. Um, you kind of touched on it with Rahab. So in a lot of these nations that he destroys or orders Israel to destroy, you don't really see an equivalent to Rahab in each of those people. So are we assuming there wasn't, a, what was it, proselytes in each of those groups, or it's not really part of the point? Well, I mean, we know that there's proselytes. Mm. Where those proselytes are coming from, are they coming specifically from these people? It's not mentioned. Um, uh, they're coming from other places at different times. I mean, the, the laws about the proselytes were even mentioned before when the people were um, when the people were wandering in the wilderness, right? So, so um, there definitely were. Right? There definitely were. It's usually not uh, mentioned where they came from or how many of them there were, but there definitely were. They had the opportunity, and the point I'm trying to make is that God accepts them. You know. Like, he's, he, this is not an ethnic thing. He, he's not saying, oh, well, you were born, you know, in the, you know, in the kingdom of Eglon. So because you're from the kingdom of Eglon, that means that's it for you. No. Everybody had the option, right? And they are the ones who chose to, instead of submitting to the God of Israel and know him to be God, instead they chose to fight against him. Mm. Yeah. And then my second question is, if we took this... Like, obviously, we can't, we're not ordered to go and, like, kill off our evil neighbors or any of that. Um, but there is, like, a protection of your salvation that is 
right? That we are ordered, not ordered, but, you know, the church says to protect your salvation. So where is the line between, you know, protecting yourself and surrounding yourself with good people and like values, but then also being around people that aren't there, like in terms of evangelism, right? Like I don't really surround myself with anyone that's not already in the church. So like, where does that, like, how do we protect ourselves but still be in the world to bring people in? So that comment you just said, I think that's not true because you will find that you do have people around you that are not from the church, like at work, for instance, right? The people that we meet in our lives who are not orthodox, we have a responsibility to them and the responsibility comes in different ways and depending on our relationship with them. Like even who's someone who's a coworker, I can have a big impact on that person. I mean, there are some people who get to the point of actually speaking about religion or if not that, just being a good example, being an, a source of encouragement, being you know somebody who is a good friend to them, knowing that while they know that I am Christian, you know, like, and I myself not being afraid to speak about my own faith, just like other people are not afraid to speak about their beliefs, right? Sometimes we are shy because we're afraid of what people might say about us, but people declare their own faith about different things all the time. Um, so, so at the very least, the people that I happen to meet and be around, I have a responsibility to them to present Christ to them in whatever form makes sense for them. Now, as far as like having close friends who are people who are non-Christian, let's say, I'm not saying that in all situations that's wrong, but it depends on what those friends are doing. Because if you have friends, and, and this actually is true of people who are already Christian. I mean, you have people who are in the church and are doing bad things, right? So I'm not telling you to be friends with and associate with those people and do, you know, be, t be in the environment where they're doing things they shouldn't be doing, and you'd be like, you know what, I'm the... I'm the, the, the light and the darkness. No, I'm not saying that, right? Because we are weak and we might not be able to, to do that, okay? And that could be a bad influence on us. So it's really based on the situation. Like usually what I tell people is if you have friends who are not from the church and let's say they smoke or whatever, right? Or, but they are willing not to do those things in your presence and otherwise like they're good friends and you want to spend some time with them okay you know if i see that that specific person is able to do that without falling okay but if a person has either friends who are like no i'm just going to be myself i'm going to do what i do and say what i say and do that then I'm like, no no you can't be friends with them right so we shouldn't over like overestimate our own like will and and our own strength like um uh, father bishoil and tony the monk he, he gave this nice analogy saying, you know, like when a sick person walks in the room, right, everybody gets sick, right? But when a healthy person walks in the room, you know, health is not contagious. It's not like he's going to make everybody healthy. So, so we should, you know, sin is very contagious, right? And it's easily transferred. So we shouldn't be like so thinking highly of ourselves that we can be in these kinds of environments. And sometimes we have to run away from them. Yeah. Yes. How how is this kind of different from, um, like the Islamic conquest, for instance? How's there there are killings in both instances? And also, I wanted to ask: uh, um, Are these kinds of battles um, 
were they are they approved in the Bible by God in the New Testament? Uh, like uh, the Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, all these kind of stuffs, uh, all these kinds of wars that were perpetrated by Christians, are they um, are they approved in the New Testament? Um, so some of these, like say the Catholic Church, for instance, who like was involved in the Crusades, maybe in their own understanding, they were being called by God to wipe out different people of other faiths, right? But we don't, we don't believe that God was actually telling them to do that. Because, again, in the New Testament, it is, it is a different approach. It doesn't mean that God is like, you know, he's not, it doesn't mean that in the New Testament we look back at this and say, oh, no, this was atrocity. No, we, 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 for its time, this was the right thing, according to what God had judged because God is again trying to send a message and he's trying to make it very clear, right? But um, in the New Testament, God does not come and say, I want you to wipe out all the people of you know whatever country. No, actually in, in the New Testament, the approach is a different approach. That's why we speak about how the New Testament is a time of grace, right? So God is presenting himself in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of everyone, right? to attract people to himself and that through this church and the establishment of the church which is now available for the whole world to attract people to himself through the church right and that the judgment will be the judgment at you know when everyone dies from leaves this world that's when the judgment will be not to say that god can't bring judgment on a group of people but he's not going to the church and he's telling the church, I want you to go kill this. No, actually, it's the opposite. He's saying what? Allow yourself to be persecuted. You know? Like, what God is saying is, like, blessed, like, like bless those who persecute you. Like, and blessed are those who are persecuted. Because actually, we preach the message of Christ through this. These people at the time were not able to do this. The difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament is that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, which allows us to serve the world in a loftier and higher way than the Israelites would have been able to serve those people, right? Without the work of the Holy Spirit in them, they are not able to, they, they, they weren't even able to fulfill the law that they had been given, right? Where it's Christ is calling us to transcend the law. And he's saying through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we become children of God, right? So, so we are able to be Christ-like. We are able to forgive our enemies. At this time, it was eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? In the New Testament, it was, no, he says, I do not say to you eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, you know, and pray for those who persecute you and, and, and abuse you, right? That's what he is saying. The goal is the same, but the method is different. So in the New Testament, God is not coming and asking us to do this. Because we have a better way of doing it. We have a better way of, of making it clear that sin is wrong and attracting people to God. Okay. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna, and the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. So 
more battles. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day, and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam king of Gezer came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on the day, on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were, who were in it, he utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish. So Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, all its cities, and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Deber, and they fought against it, and he took it and its kings and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining uh, as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Deber and its king as he had done to Libna and its king. So it's like the exact same pattern again and again and again going from all these different places. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Now, keep in mind here when it says that Joshua conquered all the land, it doesn't mean that he conquered the entire Canaan. It means that all the places that they had traveled in that area, they conquered, right? Because we'll see later on that there was still a lot more left to do. Uh, and at this point, Joshua is becoming an old man. Um, and then we'll see what happens there. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All the kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And this is the end of chapter 10 and as far as we're going to get to today. So again, we are seeing how God is working in the, in the people of Israel and through Joshua to accomplish what is it that he had promised, which is that they would conquer this land and take it as their own. Any final comments or questions? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessings, O God, in everything that we do. And we ask, O Lord, that you help us to learn all of the lessons that we need to learn from the book of Joshua and from studying your Holy Scripture. We ask, O God, that you work in us and to implant in us a desire for holiness and righteousness and to serve you, O Lord, with purity of heart and to turn to you, O Lord, in prayer and to be filled with your spirit and to feel supported and encouraged by you while we are sojourners here in this place. We ask, O God, that you grant us love in our heart for those who are outside the church and also to have peace and forgiveness and justice for those who are inside. We ask this through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints. Here's as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And with your spirit.